Welcome back to the program. Scott Fitzgerald wrote of Gatsby that if personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him, some heightened sensitivity to the promise of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impersonability which is dignified under the name of creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness, such as I've never found in any other person. What is it that gives someone those qualities? Is it their bearing, their dress, the way they hold their hands, or the words they use? Clearly some people have it, and others don't. But can it be learned? Can our power and influence be shaped beyond our clout score into something that makes us compelling? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Matthew Kohut. He's a founding partner in KNP Communications, which specializes in preparing speakers for high-stakes audiences, and he's the co-author of a new book entitled Compelling People, The Hidden Qualities That Make Us Influential. Matthew Kohut, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. When we think about being influential, are we also talking about a certain kind of charisma that some people just seem to naturally exude? You know, charisma is one of these words that does definitely get bandied about in this uh, in this conversation, and we think about it almost as the people who are in the uh, who have these qualities in abundance. And when we think about those people, are there things, are there gifts that those people have that are just natural to them, or are these things that can somehow be learned? Well, there are very much skills that can be learned. I'll just sort of give you a quick. Uh, overview of what these two what these qualities are that we're talking about what we talk about in the book are these two characteristics that we see in people when we meet them and when we encounter them and we call these strength and warmth and strength is how much a person seems to matter how much that person can affect the world and warmth is how much that person shares our interests and our concerns how much they're on the same team as us and when we see somebody who has a lot of strength and they want the same things we want when they seem like they share our concerns and interests. Those are the people that we see as, as compelling and really in the highest uh, order, the people who really possess these things in abundance. We, we call them charismatic. These are the Bill Clintons, the Oprah Winfrey's, people like that. But there is something kind of counterintuitive about that because, as you point out in the book, there seems to be a natural antipathy between strength on the one hand and warmth on the other. That's right. There's this tension between these two things. And uh, the fact that there's this tension between them makes it hard to navigate and to, to project both of them. And so the people, that's, that's why it's relatively rare error when we think about the people who attain this thing we think of as charisma. Because managing this idea of being strong and warm and, and navigating that tension it is difficult, it is doable, but it is difficult. And most people tend to be a little stronger than warm or a little warmer than strong and aren't necessarily sort of turning the knob, if you will, on the other quality to the extent that they can. Which is the harder quality to learn? Which is the harder skill to perfect? Well, it's interesting because everybody has different, you know, has a different default, if you will. Everybody has a different baseline. And so for you, it might be easier to do one, and for me, it might be harder to do the other. Uh, the, the thing I can tell you about that is that we can learn strength by, uh, by sort of faking it, if you will, 
to get started. So think about when people join the military, they learn to stand up straight and project a lot of strength and they have their head straight and they do things that project a lot of physical or visual strength. Uh, the trick with warmth is you can't fake warmth. We can tell fake smiles a mile away and really only but the very best classically trained actors can fake warmth and have us believe it. So that's the one thing I would say is you can learn to be strong. Warmth you have to feel on the inside, and so that's a, a pretty critical difference. How much does attitude play a role in this? We, we talk a lot about authenticity. Talk about that, that issue. Yeah, I would say that authenticity speaks to this idea of warmth. If you are authentic, you're showing people your true self, you're being honest with them, that really speaks to your intentions. And warmth is about showing people your intentions and having good ones. Again, if you share their concerns and interests, you're not going to be hiding your cards from them. And authenticity is very much in line with that. How much has to do with the external? How much is about style and fashion and projection and all of those things that, that you talk about in compelling people? Well, style certainly matters, and uh, I don't want to overplay it, but the way you carry yourself, the way you dress yourself, the way you look to people does matter. I mean, certainly people wear uniforms to project certain things in different kinds of uh, professions, and the way you choose to show yourself to the world says something, and thinking about whether it says something that is you know, stronger or warmer is just something to be aware of. I think one of the things you want to think about when you're asking the style question is, in the setting I'm going into, do people like it if someone seems different, or do people expect you to sort of play by the rules? And that the level to which people are comfortable with you deviating from whatever the norm is, that, that's just something to be aware of. Again, there's no hard and fast right or wrong about it. It's really more an awareness that we want to cultivate in people about the importance that style plays in projecting these qualities. What about differences with respect to the arena? Somebody that wants to project these things among the tech world might be different than those that want to do it in politics or those that are trying to do it on Wall Street, for example. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, think about the tech world and, you know, a room full of people in jeans and T-shirts. There may be a very skeptical look about someone who shows up in a $2,000 suit that would look completely normal on Wall Street. So you're absolutely right that, and I, I sort of stayed focused on the style piece of it here, but it's also true in the demeanor that you bring and the sort of behaviors that you project toward people. Again, uh, so much of this is context-based, and if there's one thing that you want to think about, it's what's the con what does the context demand of a person and what's going to seem like the appropriate thing to bring in terms of this balance of strength and warmth so that you get the response that you're looking for from folks. Where does education fit into the equation? That's a really interesting question. I think that certainly that everyone has the ability to uh, project these qualities and to learn how to project them regardless of any formal education they've had. The thing that I think that uh, is worth keeping in mind is the extent to which you're aware of yourself and aware of yourself moving through the world with other people. And if education plays a part in that, that's, that's a possibility. But I certainly don't think that formal education precludes anybody from being able to embody these characteristics. Only to the extent that, that you talk about the importance of verbal communication in some respects. Yeah, that's right. And clearly, verbal skill is something that can be related to your education level. Uh, having said that, the t kinds of techniques we talk about 
in the book certainly don't require a master's degree or anything like that. They're they're pretty sort of basic ideas about how to make sure that you're connecting with people and uh, building a rapport with them if you want them to be able to hear what you have to say. How does this tie into skills as a leader and leadership ability? Oh, that's a great question. You know, these two qualities of strength and warmth that I mentioned, when we think about strength, these are people who can get things done. When we think about warmth, warmth is the idea that somebody seems like they're on your team or on your side. So leaders are the people we identify as strong and warm because they can get stuff done and they're doing it on our behalf. So we rest easy at night when we see these people. We put them in charge. We say, you got it. And so these qualities are absolutely what we see in, in leaders in all kinds of different settings. How did gender roles play a new part in this? Had you written this book 20 years ago, you'd be, you'd be approaching gender roles differently than today. You just hit the nail on the head here. The, the, so uh, gender roles make a, definitely make an impact in the way people perceive strength and warmth. And yet, as you just said, those roles are defined by the time we're living in. So um, the idea that we would look at women in the workplace, let's say, differently today than we did in 1973 is absolutely right. And I have a feeling that, that this is very fluid stuff. And so I'd say 10 years from now, we would have a very different perspective on the role that gender plays in this. Mm -hmm. Talk about the ways in which you approach teaching these skills to people. When, when people come to you, how do you begin the process? Well, the first thing we do is we just try to get to know a person. A lot of times the people we're working with are going to be going on TV to talk about something. Maybe they've written a book, in fact. And so what we're going to do is talk to them, maybe ask them questions like we would in an interview, and see what comes out. And then we really look at where they project strength and where they project warmth, and we show them that stuff, and we talk with them very directly about what we're seeing. And we offer them some tips about how they might turn those different knobs, if you will, to project a little bit more of the thing they might be lacking, and maybe even if they need to turn down the one they have in abundance, uh, we just try and strike a balance that seems natural given who they are and what they bring to the table just as a, as a person. How self-aware do you find that most people are in these areas? You know, it barely varies. Uh, some people, they, uh, you know, I'll give you an example we see all the time. Uh, one of the things we mentioned in the book is that a lot of people go through life with their head on a tilt. <laughs> and I mean, literally, their head just tilted a little bit to the side, almost as though they're listening to you. Or even in the extreme, like they just saw a cute little puppy dog and they went, ah. <laughs> and so, you know, that kind of thing, people are not often very aware about. Uh, that's, a, that's an example of something where people are very uh, unaware, by and large. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've shown people this, and they say, oh, gosh, I never knew that. And we just sort of correct it, and it goes away, and that's, that's the end of the story. Um, and it's, it's a small thing, but when you see it in a, on a TV screen, for instance, you notice if somebody's head's on a tilt, and it gives away a little bit of their strength and their authority. Uh, on the broader sense, self-awareness about behaviors, a lot of the people we work with are coming to us from professional contexts, and they may be been through evaluations and these kind of 360 assessments, and so they may have some sense of the kind of behavioral stuff that their colleagues are seeing in them. What about the way in which people relate to person's individual space? We've all had the experience of somebody that 
that either is too far away or too close, which is more often the case, and it's off-putting and uncomfortable. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, you remind me of the Seinfeld close talker episode. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, sense of how people use space very much goes to this question of strength. When somebody is is invading your space, they're dominating you in some way, or they're you know they're trying they're what we perceive it as a, a strength move, and so we want them to back off. And that's very much uh, something that says, I, I'm, I'm strong, so I'm going to stand right next to you. And they may not be aware of that. I mean, sometimes that's not the intention of this person, but it's certainly how we respond to it. And our instinct is to say, hey, step back, buddy. So you're, you're absolutely right. Use of space is very, is very interesting, and particularly where, the use of, where uh, strength projection is concerned. We've been talking about this a lot as it relates to business and, and the professional world. How does this same, these same ideas relate to interpersonal relationships and friendships? Well, it, they absolutely do. I think, you know, we, we talk about dating in the book and about how there is, how these dynamics certainly play in a dating situation. And just as far as friendships and even parenting, the strength and warmth uh, dynamics are very much in play. I mean, parents know this as well as anyone that with kids, if you're too strict with them, they you know, will cower, and if you're too warm with them, they'll run, ramp, run roughshod over you. So these dynamics are present in a lot of facets of everyday life. Has technology or the online world or the way we communicate today changed or shifted any of this? I don't know that it's shifted it so much as it's just in, it's made it, uh, it's brought it to life in, a, in the online forum in a way that it obviously wasn't 20 years ago. So nowadays people are on Facebook, for instance, and they, you have videos of everybody and photos of everyone, and you see more of their strength and warmth in these different settings now. And so this is whereas this is just something we'd never thought about years ago because most of us had photos in a box somewhere in our drawer. Now everyone has photos and videos of everyone else, and we're getting more information about each other as a result of these. And it's, it's sort of making our opinions of people. It's, it's rounding out our opinions of people. And so it's just something for us to be aware of when we're on video in uh, any kind of a setting, even a social setting that we just think of as an entirely fun thing. Uh, you know, people are going to be seeing this, you know, forever at, <laughs> after at this point. And so, uh, you know, the strength and warmth stuff is coming through whether we like it or not. And is it causing us to develop faster and more immediate first impressions that are not always useful in terms of the broader context of, of what the relationship might be. I, th I think that, that can be the case in some uh, in some instances for sure, and you know it's part of the reason we suggest that people take a look at the social media profiles that they have, and I don't mean the written profiles, but just the, what's out there about them, so that, that they're aware of the impression that they're leaving behind with people, not just in a professional context. I mean, everyone knows that you have to sort of be smart about that in terms of not having photos of you doing crazy stuff online when you're looking for a job, but just in the general sense, if you want people to both respect you and like you, and that's those are sort of proxies for sensing your strength and your warmth, then you have to be just kind of cognizant of those things where the online world is concerned. Are there people that just can't convey warmth? People that may be warm when you get to know them, but that they really have an inability to convey warmth in a quick kind of way? You know, I'll give you an example from the book. We were working with a guy who was running for Congress years ago, and he said, you know, I'm just not a smiley guy. 
And we said, oh, that's, you know, okay, let's, let's think about this. And we started talking to him, and we just sort of took a break from the work we were doing with the video camera and his speeches. And we got him talking, and we realized that when this guy started talking with his, his son and his family, he was as warm as anybody. And so at some fundamental level, usually there's something we can connect with in people. And in this case, this guy's case, it was the fact that he was a father. And when he talked about his family, he just sort of melted into being a gushing dad who was proud of his kid. And so if you can find the thing that makes you feel warm like that and use that as a way to generate the warmth you want to show people, then that's a way of accessing it, even if you're not the most smiling, bubbly, attaboy kind of a person. Which brings up another interesting point. People that are one way in private, that you see them very warm and very engaging and, and, and showing all of these qualities in a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation, but put them up there on the stage in front of hundreds of people and you get somebody entirely different. That's right, and that's what's so interesting is that when people are put into these different kinds of situations, they respond very differently. Part of it's nerves, of course, and a lack of comfort in that situation, and part of it is just not having practiced bringing the person that they are with their friends and family to a broader arena and sharing that same sense of uh, of their warmth with with larger audiences and that can be a, that, that's definitely can take a lot of practice for some, some folks uh, because they may have preconceptions that they're supposed to seem more serious or more formal and you know what we found right now is that we're in this era where conversation is the dominant paradigm you know back 40 50 years ago you know, when we think about senators and presidents there's more of a formal oratory style and I'm not just referring to politicians here but they're useful proxy. Uh, nowadays, life is more conversational. When you watch TED Talks, they're more conversational than old-fashioned speeches. And so when people think about relating to audiences, it's worth keeping in mind the fact that what you're really trying to do is have a conversation with people. And if you can transplant that way that you are with your friends and family in front of an audience, that's, that's often the best possible way you can come across. It's a much more engaging environment. The idea of the old sage on the stage, as they say, just doesn't play anymore in, in contemporary society. That's right. People want to have give and take with you. They, they don't want to be spoken down to by the, state, the sage, as you say. So it's very much something that uh, is the way we've gone, and I think it's here to stay. Matthew Kohut, his book is Compelling People, The Hidden Qualities That Make Us Influential, Matthew, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.